Amen. Y'all may be seated. As you're being seated, find your Bibles and go to John chapter 19, John chapter 19, for six hours on a Friday. The armies of life and death waged war. All of creation, all of history had been relentlessly marching towards this moment. Just as the townspeople were finishing their breakfast, word began to spread through the city of Jerusalem that Jesus, the teacher, the would-be Messiah, had been arrested in the coolness of the night out in the little garden known as Gethsemane. And now the trial of eternity was taking place just outside of the temple in this little area known as Fort Antonia. From outside the walls, two little boys who were playing, Rufus and Alexander, they began to hear the crowd as they cried, Crucify Him! Crucify Him! And worried, they ran back to their father short of breath, and they said, Father, it sounds as though a riot is taking place there at the Roman fort. The crowd is crying, Crucify Him! And the scene is, is just very disturbing. So Simon tells his boys to come close to him and that they will wait outside of the city walls to make sure that everything is okay. John picks up the story in verse 16 of John 19. The scriptures read, So then he handed him over to be crucified. And therefore they took Jesus away, carrying his own cross. He went out to what is called Skull Place which in Hebrew is called Golgotha. It's about 8.30 in the morning when the execution parade makes its way past Simon. Luke tells us that as they led Jesus away, that they seized Simon, who was a Cyrenian. And Simon was coming in from the country, and so they laid Jesus' cross on Simon to carry behind Jesus. Simon and his sons had come to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover feast, the greatest Jewish holiday of them all, and now Simon found himself staring face to face with the meaning of the Passover. One of the things that's interesting to me through the story of the cross is how you have people like Judas, Peter, Barabbas, and here's Simon, who are woven into the crucifixion story. And these are normal people. People like you and me who are struggling with eternal matters. These are people who are struggling with their sin nature and then the grace that only Christ can bring. So we have Simon of Cyrene, who wraps his dark hands around the cross and in the process becomes a picture of us all uh, carrying the load of sin And realizing that we need Christ to die on our behalf. In verse 18, the scriptures read, There they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, with Jesus in the middle. About six feet on either side of Jesus, they crucified two criminals. Now, these two men had both been born under Roman law. And I would think that they never imagined 
that their life would end in this way. They had reached a point in their life where Rome, the dominant nation in the world, considered them unworthy of anything. They were unworthy of slavery. They were unworthy of working in the mines to find minerals and find the the things that the Roman army needed. They were unworthy to dig roads or to row ships. In the eyes of Rome, the only good these men had to offer was to be made an example of. All three men were no doubt familiar with crucifixion. They knew its sounds. They knew its smell. They knew its gore. The two criminals must have been up all night in wonderment. Perhaps they even wondered with Barabbas. Will they use nails? Will they use ropes? How long will I hang? What's going to happen to my body? Is anybody going to care? It was about 9 a.m. when the hammers began to ring. And many sermons have been preached on the agony of crucifixion. And movies have been made which depict it in all of its gore. I think the gospel writers probably captured it best with three simple words. They crucified him. Pilate also had a sign lettered, and he put it on the cross. And the inscription was, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. And many of the Jews read this sign because the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and Greek. And so the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Don't write the King of the Jews, but that he said, I am the king of the Jews. And Pilate replied, What I have written, I have written. The Romans wanted crucifixion to be a hideous spectacle of suffering. And so they would have what was called the death march. It would not be uncommon as you were beginning your day there in Jerusalem, as you were going to the market, that you would see a criminal being led out of the city by the Roman soldiers to be crucified. Around that criminal's neck, they would hang a sign, and on that sign was written the crime for which the person was being crucified. Frequently, above the head of the crucified person was the sign. The sign was not a compliment. Pilate wrote it in Hebrew. He wrote it in Latin. He wrote it in Greek. He knew that people were coming to Jerusalem from all around the world, and he wanted everybody to see This is what happens to would-be kings. This is what happens when you cross Rome. This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Look at him. When the soldiers crucified Jesus, they took his clothes, and they divided them in four parts, a part for each soldier. And they also took the tunic, which was seamless, woven in one piece from the top. And so they said to one another, let's not tear it, but cast lots for it to see who gets it. They did this to fulfill the scriptures that says, they divided my clothes among themselves and they cast lots for my clothing. And this is what the soldiers did. When you read the crucifixion story and you read it in all four gospels, you begin to realize what a a sea of anger Jesus suffered within. The soldiers 
treated him like a caged animal. Whenever he was thirsty, they offered him sour wine, a, a vinegar to drink. They mocked him. They took his clothing. They tore it, divided it amongst themselves, gambled over his tunic. The religious leaders, the ones who were supposed to be emulated, the ones who were the most learned in all the community, they knew the scriptures backwards and forwards. You could not out-religious the Pharisees and the Sadducees. These men taunted the gospel. They heaped insults on Christ. Hey, he saved others. Why, why doesn't he save himself? Come on down from this cross, Jesus. Perhaps the angels will come and take care of you. Such a narcissistic, nauseating group of individuals, exalting themselves while belittling others. Jesus looked at them and said, hey, everything on the outside is exactly as you want it to be. The picture that you portray is pristine, but inside you are rotting bones. God's not in your heart. All you do is God kind of stuff. But in the soul, you're dry. Matthew and Mark say that in the same way, the criminals kept taunting Jesus. That they hurled insults upon him. You dive into the Greek connotations and the idea was that the criminals were saying things to Jesus that were just so reprehensible that they could not even be written within our scriptures. And yet through the agony and through all the darkness and the anger, piercing the darkness comes grace. And you see one of the great cries of the cross when Jesus calls out, Father, forgive them. Now, can you imagine that? You've been crucified. You've been betrayed. You've been treated this way. People are talking about you in, in such vile ways. And you call out, Father, forgive them. For they do not know what they are doing. Literally, Jesus calls out to his Father and says, Pour out your wrath on me. Their anger has blinded them, drained their hearts of anger, and filled them with grace. Standing by the cross were Jesus' mother, his mother's sister Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. I think sometimes this is a missed part of the story. I can't imagine what Mary must have felt as she stood there and, and watched her son be crucified. We have moms in the audience today. Put yourself in her sandals. It wasn't long ago that she was wrapping Jesus in swaddling clothes, lying him in a manger. It wasn't long ago that she was welcoming the shepherds and the wise men, celebrating the birth of Jesus. And now he hangs hangs on a cross, dying. And she surveys her son and realizes that he is dying so that others might live and even dying so that she might live. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, and scholars agree that the disciple he loved was referring to John, he says to his mother, Woman, here is your son. And then he said to the disciple, here is your mother. 
And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. The fifth commandment reads, honor our father and our mother. Honor your father and mother. It's not really that popular these days. Whenever you watch television shows, you see kids talking back to their parents all the time, being smart aleck. Frequently in the television shows, the dads are portrayed as dumb. The moms are overwhelmed, trying to make sure everything is run. And in in the society in which we live, many just play the blame game, constantly blaming our moms and dads, constantly blaming our families for everything bad in our life. My relationships are bad because my parents set a poor example. I'm struggling at work. It's because I was not potty trained correctly. I'm not happy. The reason I'm not happy is because my parents were overbearing or maybe my parents weren't there whenever I needed them to be. In our society today, people are always playing the blame game. Blame, 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 blame. And God says, don't blame your family. Our aim should be to honor our parents. And even in his agony, Jesus takes the time to honor his mother. Now, Jesus' family dynamics were not always smooth. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you'll find that some of his brothers and sisters thought he was crazy. In fact, they came to get him early in his ministry and take him back to Nazareth because they thought he was out of his mind. Jesus' family dynamics were not always easy. And yet he honored his mother. He made sure that she was cared for. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the Scriptures might be fulfilled, he said, I'm thirsty. Now that's, that's an interesting choice of words. I mean, we have, we have this big buildup here. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the Scripture might be fulfilled, he says, what are you about to say, Jesus? I'm thirsty. Now, a jar of sour wine was sitting there, and so they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on hyssop and held it up to his mouth. So many feelings coursing through our Lord. The pain of the beating, death beginning to wrap its arms around Jesus, the load of sin upon him, and yet such a simple request, I'm thirsty. My mind flashes back to John chapter 4. There's a scene there when Jesus is tired after a long journey and he comes to a well, Jacob's well, and He runs into a Samaritan woman. And the Samaritan woman was not Jewish, and so the the Hebrew people would not communicate with the Samaritans. And she was also a woman who didn't have a great reputation within the community. And Jesus does something rather radical. He says to her, give me a drink of water. It doesn't really sound to us that radical for him to say, I'm thirsty, I need a drink of water. But within that culture, he was breaking through all sorts of stereotypes. You're not from my tribe. You don't look like me. You're not one that everybody looks up to as an example of what a person is to be. Yet, I want to drink from the very jar that you drink. May I have a drink of water? 
And the Samaritan woman looks at him and says, Why do you ask me, a Samaritan woman, for a drink of water? Don't you know that you're not supposed to do that? And Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, You don't even have a bucket. And the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You know, much of life is a pursuit of trying to quench our thirst. We have all these different things that we thirst for in life. We thirst for power. We thirst for money. We thirst for loving relationships. We thirst for people to admire us. We thirst to be free and not to be restricted. We thirst for joy. All these different things that we thirst for. And many of us, we spend our days chasing satisfaction. There is something within us that is just thirsting for more. And it's like we we never can find it. We never can find what will quench our thirst. We live hyperactive lives with dehydrated souls. Always thirsting for what's next. Always thirsting for something that will last. We eat a delicious meal and then we begin planning our next meal. We move in and out of activity at breakneck speed. We're always connected to activity. Always thirsting for something more. And Jesus says, everyone who drinks from my water or from this water will get thirsty again. But whoever drinks from the water that I will give him will never get thirsty again, ever. In fact, the water I will give him will become a well of water springing up within him for eternal life. In other words, the water I'm offering you. It doesn't run dry. It truly satisfies. It's what quenches the thirst of your soul. It lasts forever. In verse 30 of John chapter 19, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. In the Old Testament, sour wine was often symbolic of sin. And you see Jesus taking in the sour wine. And then after this, he proclaims, it is finished. The atonement has been made. The debt has been paid in full. It is finished. It's an unusual cry just before you die. It's almost a cry of victory, of exclamation. What I have came for has been finished. Sins have been atoned for. Victory is on the horizon. Bowing his head, he gives up the spirit. The end of the agony, the beginning of the victory. At creation, God had established a divine rhythm. The Hebrew word is shalom. It's a balance, a peace. And the Genesis story reads that into this peace, this rhythm was a fracturing called sin. And all the work of God 
the call of Abraham, the commandments of Moses, the formation of the nation, the writings of the prophets, they had all been pointing to this divine moment. The fracture has been healed. God has intervened into the scene so that we might be redeemed. It is finished. Your sins have been paid for. Max Lucado writes, There is a post-war hour when the business of killing has stopped and the business of burying has begun. The air of the battlefield is thick with dust Death and sudden silence. For six hours the conflict raged on, but now the business of killing is over and the business of burying has begun. Jesus taught us as followers that we are to remember the cross, that we are to never forget what He did for us. And He gave us the Lord's Supper as a means when believers gather together in worship as a tangible means for us to remember who Jesus is and what He did for us on the cross. We have the bread and the wine and the bread represents His body and the brokenness of the cross. It represents our sin and how He bore our sin upon Himself when He died on the cross. The wine represents His blood. How it was shed is an atonement for our sin. Through the wine comes grace. Through through the blood comes grace. Through the blood comes hope, victory, deliverance. A beautiful, symbolic representation of what Jesus did for us in this very story that we just looked at. And so as part of our worship today, we're going to invite those who are believers in Jesus. And the Scriptures are very specific that before you partake in the Lord's Supper, you yourself need to be a believer in Christ. And so we invite those who are believers in Jesus to come and receive the Lord's Supper. The deacons, the ministers will be here at this station, and there's also one at the back. You can go there, receive the Lord's Supper, take the, take the juice and the bread and go back to your seat. Have a moment of prayer and then receive them. Remembering Jesus. If you're not a believer yet, we're glad that you're here. And we want to invite you to become a believer today. I'll, I'll be standing right over here. And during this time of movement, I, I invite you to come and see me and say, I want to believe in Jesus Christ today as my Lord and Savior. The last time we did the Lord's Supper, a young lady came to me during it. said, I, I want to be a believer. And she believed in Christ that day. Let's stand together. Our heads are bowed. The deacons will move to the Lord's Supper stations. I'm going to pray. And after I pray, the music will begin. And then I invite you to receive the Lord's Supper. Father, we thank you for for the scripture that we've read today. Lord, it's hard. It's difficult to read. It's difficult to think about. But it also shows us the magnitude of what sin really is. It shows us that while we were yet sinners, you loved us in this way. You demonstrated your love in such a way that Christ died for us. And Lord, I pray that our hearts might be full of gratitude.
I pray that we will not forget the death of Christ. Lord, many of us today, we spend our lives in constant movement. Sometimes, Father, we look to other things to quench our thirst and we think that if I can just get that promotion, if I can just reach this financial milestone, if I can just graduate, if I can just get married, if I can just have a child, get that house, be free, achieve, that the thirst of our soul will be quenched. And we remember today that what our soul is really longing for is living water. Father, that at the common denominator of humankind is a need for forgiveness. A need to be touched by grace. To know you. And so, Lord, we pray that we might swim in that living water today. As we take of the Lord's Supper, we remember. In Jesus' name, amen.